What did we get the prize for? Well, if I were really to be saying witty, uh, it was uh, realizing that it takes time uh, for workers to find jobs and for uh, employers to find workers. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Tuesday, October 12th, and that was Dale Mortensen, co-winner of this year's Nobel Prize in Economics. You heard at the top. Today on the podcast, we continue our occasional series where we bring you some greatest hits from introductory econ lectures, tuition-free. We have two puzzles for you. I'll give you one to mull over. Would you rather live a middle-class life today or live in an estate with gardeners, cooks, maids, but you have to live 100 years ago? Can I have C? <laughs> nope, A or B. <laughs> All right. Well, first, let's get to our Planet Money Indicator from our own model student, Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money Indicator, it has to do with the foreclosure mess. But let's change things up a little. Let's talk through the mess first, and then we'll get to the indicator. Oh, mixing it up, keeping so, us on our toes. I'm keeping you on your toes. Now, Alex, you and I have been talking a lot about this over the past few days. Why don't you start out by just kind of walking through where we are so far in the mess? Okay. So in the past few weeks, there have been news reports that's become clear that employees at some big banks signed thousands of foreclosure documents without properly reviewing them. This has mainly been an issue in the 23 states in the union where foreclosures have to go through the courts. But on Friday... Bank of America said it's suspending foreclosures in all 50 states, at least for the moment, while this all gets sorted out. And now there are calls from some people in Congress for the rest of the industry to follow Bank of America and suspend foreclosures nationwide. We should mention here that one of the lenders involved, GMAC Mortgage, is owned by Ally, which is a Planet Money sponsor. Okay, Alex, that's good. So, so we have a sense of the broader context here. It, it's worth noting that the banks say that this whole thing is really just a procedural issue. You know, they didn't dot all the I's and cross all the T's, and they want to go back and make sure their processes are in order. But they essentially suggest, well, it's not that big of a deal. But, you know, on the other hand, it's really clear that this was totally sloppy and totally rushed. And, and it makes sense to pause foreclosures to get the details sorted out, because obviously you don't want people being wrongly thrown out of their homes. That's a big deal. And if this pause reduces the risk of people being thrown out of their homes when they shouldn't be, obviously that's a good thing. Guys, can I be contrarian for a second? Make the contrarian point at least, which is that there are a huge number of foreclosures out there that need to happen. And that was one of the things we learned with Toxie, our pet toxic asset. A lot of the mortgages that were in Toxie were already in foreclosure. There are a lot of people out there who owe more than their home is worth, and they either can't afford the mortgage anymore, or they've decided it's just not worth it to keep paying. And there's a strong argument that those foreclosures need to happen. David, I, I appreciate your contrarian point, not least because it brings me to today's Planet Money Indicator. Oh, I forgot about the indicator. You did not I forget, about, forget the about the indicator. About today's Planet Money Indicator. Three million. There are three million foreclosed homes that are likely to come onto the market in the next few years. Uh, that's according to a, a recent estimate from Realty Track, a company that tracks these things. And, and those three million homes are casting this great big shadow over the housing market. There's already a glut of houses on the market, more houses for sale than people are buying. And there's a sense that housing won't be in the clear, you know, won't be out of the bust, won't be back to sort of normal times until the market churns through all these foreclosures. So if this foreclosure mess 
process drags on, if it becomes clear that the banks have been making lots of errors and it takes forever to get the whole process started again, it'll slow down this necessary but ugly process of going through all these foreclosures where people can't afford the mortgage, where people aren't paying their mortgage, getting them on the market, getting them sold, and getting the housing market back to something resembling normal. All right. Thank you very much, Jacob. Thanks, guys. Alex, a while back, we started scouring the halls of academia, asking dozens of professors who teach introductory economics classes to give us their best stuff, that killer example or a story or a puzzle that they start class with. Today, we're going to bring you two of those. All right, class, take your seats. Oh, man. I overslept on the first day of class. Um, (laughs) Hey, there aren't any seats here. Just sit on the floor or something. All right. Okay. I'll sit over here by the wall. (laughs) This actually is the problem that Alan Sanderson often has at the University of Chicago. He's taught there for over 20 years. And on the first day of class, he'll walk into the lecture hall, look out at the room, and it's packed. People in the doorway, people sitting on the windowsill. On the floor. On the floor, which is a problem. So he'll stall. He'll introduce himself. He'll go over the syllabus. And maybe a few people will get bored and leave, but not many. There are still, he says, way too many students. Then I say, look, there are probably 40 people in this room who want to add into this class that's officially closed. And maybe I'm willing to let in 10. So then the question becomes, which 10? Which 10? (laughs) Now, for most people, this might be a kind of who cares question. But Sanderson is an economist. And for him, this is an economic puzzle. So he can't just let himself do it arbitrarily. Economics, of course, is all about how to allocate scarce resources, even if those scarce resources are seats in an economics lecture hall. In the world, of course, we have a limited amount of food, limited amount of welfare dollars, hospital beds, limited amount of iPhones. How do we decide who gets what? That's economics. So Alan Sanderson says to his class, this is a serious question. Tell me, what do I do? Who should get to stay in class? Uh, Excuse me, over here, I'm I'm on the floor. Yeah? I have an idea. Okay. I think uh, we should just do it alphabetically. (laughs) How convenient for you, Alex Bloomberg. (laughs) Alan Sanderson says this is what happens. Students offer various rationales. They're often self-serving. Seniors will say, it's my last chance to take the class before graduating. Or someone will say, why not make it merit-based? You know, pick the most promising students, maybe the ones with the highest GPA, like me. And then Alan Sanderson will suggest this thing that sounds a little crazy, but he says, maybe, maybe we use the helicopter. The university has a helicopter, medical helicopter. What if I put 10 slips, 10 signed pink slips, which are the the admission permissions, in the helicopter and just have them drive over campus and drop them out? Whoever can catch them. Exactly. And then you can actually, somebody say, well, gee, you know, it might be fighting, you know, we might fight over something, get hurt. And I said, well, it, actually, it's, an, it's another way of thinking about it is, is violence. We could go to the gym and I could put the 10 slips out in the middle of the basketball court and you just fight them over. And uh, those who end up with the 10 slips get in. And while on the one hand, it's ridiculous. On the other hand, uh, if you think of, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, that's how turf gets rationed. So it's it's not as outrageous as it might seem. But still, we don't want to go that direction. Another idea, do it randomly. I can set it up by saying, look, what, what if I say I'm going to sign pink slips outside my office as of 8 o'clock tomorrow morning? So the first 10 people in line, sort of the first come kind of thing. In other words, first come, first serve. And what all these solutions have in common is that they're trying to allocate these scarce resources based on some notion of fairness. Who is the most deserving? Who is the first person to get in line? 
who's the strongest, who lifted the most weights, whatever it is. Or just leave it to randomness, right, if you can't decide. So, so these solutions that are fair, though they are not necessarily efficient. I mean, violence is clearly destructive. Even waiting in line, Sanderson points out, the students could probably be doing better things with their time, like studying or sleeping <laughs> or, let's be honest, throwing cake parties and updating their Facebook status. So how do you pick, right? In the world, we have a common way to distribute resources, and that is through the market, right? That's how we determine who gets the limited amount of oil in the world or the corn that's grown. It all happens through a price. So why not do the same for seats in an economics lecture hall? Ultimately, in my sort of writing these things on the blackboard, suggestions from the students, somebody will get around to, well, what if you were to sell the seats? And I say, yeah, what if I held an auction or, in fact, had you just submit a, a, an envelope with a check in it and I will cash the, the 10 highest checks because then in some ways that's a – it's very efficient. It gives me some notion of your willingness to pay. How much do you really want to be in this class? How much do you expect that you'll get from it? What do you mean by efficient? That you don't waste resources, that you, you make the most of the scarce resources. It's, uh, in, in each case, there's the students of the 40 students – they're going to have different desires to be in the class, and the amount that they're willing to pay is is some reflection of that. Doesn't it some, also, but doesn't it also mean that the richer students might be more likely to be able to get into the class? That's right. But that's where we then butt heads on this kind of trade-off between fairness and efficiency. And it doesn't matter almost what the societal problem is. It comes down to these two issues. On the one hand, what's fair – uh, what's equitable, what's just, and the other hand is how can we make the most efficient use of the scarce resources we, we have. All right. So how does he finally make the decision? I'll tell you in a second. But this is the point he wants to make. A lot of questions there aren't clear economic answers to because you've got the efficient or inefficient answer and then you've got the question of what is fair. Sometimes he says you get really lucky and what is efficient also feels fair to most people, but a lot of times not. So this little problem about who gets into class, it is many problems in economics. It's central to a lot of difficult decisions that governments and societies have to make. If we take a look at immigration policy now and say the United, if the United States is willing to let 10 million people in, uh, which 10 million? Is it going to be the 10 million who have sneaked into the United States? Is the 10 million who speak English the best or highest education? Is it random? We're just going to draw names out of a hat. Uh, or would it be people who would be willing to pay the most to come into the United States? Some have advocated we ought to have a price. If you're willing to pay a price, we can make you a loan. Uh, if you anticipate benefiting the most from being in the United States, you, you can pay for it. Where do we as a society often end up coming down if you just look at sort of government policy over the decades? Do we end up with the fair, with the solutions that people feel are fair? Or do we end up with the ones that are efficient or is it a toss-up? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I mean, uh, fairness matters. Uh, fairness tends to matter to politicians. It's one of the words out of their mouth mo most frequently. Economists don't spend as much time on the fairness side where politicians do because fairness is much more difficult to define. Efficiency economists can define the sort of anywhere from the intersection of supply and demand curves to marginal cost equals marginal benefit. We can think about what's efficient, but it's just much more hard, much harder to think about fairness. That's sort of the realm for the, the philosophers and the ethicists. All right, Alex, you want to know how he resolves the overcrowding issue in class? Yes, I do. 
he just lets them all in and it sort of works itself out. Enough people end up dropping out that it's fine. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Where does that fit in economic theory? <laughs> so his trick is to make a scarce resource not a scarce resource? <laughs> yes. And then eventually people get so fit up with sitting on this floor or whatever, they can't hear and they'll just like leave. A friend actually told me about uh, the way one professor, she remembers one professor solving this, which is to say, okay, we're just going to stay here and eventually five people will leave. And the remaining people, you are going to be in the class. And it's just like this hands on a hard body staring contest. It's just <laughs> survivor, like, wait, survivor eventually, eventually like a few people get up and. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should vote people out of the class. <laughs> I love that. That So he has all these economic theories, and then he totally ignores his own advice. I think it's just a cop-out, really. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he doesn't have to be inflicting the pain. Right. Okay. On to puzzle two. And this one is another puzzle from another econ lecture that involves making a choice, but a very different choice. And this one comes from Tim Taylor, who has taught a lot of intro classes in his day. He is now at McAllister College in Minnesota, and he sometimes begins like this. Today, we're going to talk about economic growth and... I just want to tell you all in advance that you're going to have to vote here. So I need you to pay attention to what your two choices are. So choice A is you get a middle class standard of living right now. So let's call that round numbers something like $70,000 a year in income. Okay. Choice B is you get that same $70,000 a year in income, but you get it in the year 1900. And oh. you have to choose whether you'd like that now or back in 1900. So in 1900, $70,000 a year, I would be super rich, right? That's right. $70,000 a year back in 1900, you probably have to multiply that by 10 or more to get how much income it would be right now. So we're not talking about just being average rich. We're talking about really being darn rich. We're talking about the mansion and the servants and, and everything you can imagine in the lap of luxury at that time. So it would be like living off $700,000 a year in the present. Tim asks the class, okay, raise your hands. How many for living off $70,000 a year now? And how many for living off $70,000 a year but living 100 years ago? And he says the students all kind of crane their heads around to see how everyone else is voting. Alex, which do you pick? I'm going for the money. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. You, I'd be a rich dude in 1900. Like I'd have, I'd probably have like some gigantic mansion in the countryside. I'd have... Servants, I would drink port after every dinner. I'd probably get to wear all sorts of fancy clothes like waistcoats and top hats. Um, you know, I'd have like a carriage come pick me up and take me out. And I don't know, I'd go on fox hunts. Fox hunts. I can't go on fox hunts now. Can I remind you of one thing? Uh, sure. Television, movies, they don't exist. Right. You have to actually live with the technology that was available to you in 1900. There's no movies yet. <laughs> There's Is that no true? Movies the, the, no movies yet at all? Oh, well, I, there might be a few experimental ones. I think that Edison may have created, you know, a few a few uh, things where there were, you know, f movies stuck together. But certainly, people weren't going to theaters and seeing movies until later on than that. And uh, you go there was vaudeville, there was live entertainment, there was, uh, you know, there were shows you could go and see. Particularly if you were rich, the people would come to you. But but also, if you, I mean, if you wanted to travel, it would be a long, long, slightly dangerous boat ride, right? Sure. It's several weeks to cross the ocean at that point. And, uh, and when you're trying to get news from faraway places, it, some comes by telegraph. The, the undersea cable's been laid between London and New York. But, but the news and the access to the world is, is altogether different than it, than it would be now. 
Alex, there's one other thing you'd be missing. Uh, antibiotics, also vaccine. Basically, all of modern medicine is yet to happen. All right. So to tally it all up, I could go on fox hunts. I would have servants that would draw my bath. But if I want to get entertainment, I have to go to the opera or a vaudeville show. And if I step on a nail, I could die. Right. What's option two again? <laughs> option two is $70,000 in the present. So enough for a decent-sized house. You got a car. You can go to movies. You got health care. You have vacuum cleaner, washing machine. You can fly across the country in hours. You got air conditioning. I know. I know. You got everything that you got today. But, I mean, I'm sort of attached to the fox hunts. All right. So Tim Taylor says in class when he asked this question, about a third of the students vote like you to be rich in 1900 and two-thirds vote to be just middle class in the present. And I'm guessing this is another one where there isn't a right answer. Right. And that's the point. It's amazing to think that this is such a hard choice, right? Fantastically rich 100 years ago or you get some house in the suburbs today. But it's a close call. Economic growth and the force of economic growth over time has given middle-class people in America today things that would have been regarded as miracles a century ago. And having access to those miracles is worth an enormous amount. When anyone says, well, you know, economic growth doesn't matter all that much or let's worry about other things uh, than economic growth, the ability to have growth over a long, sustained period of time is transformative to all our lives. It's it's richer, healthier, longer, easier, more fulfilling lives. And it's worth an extraordinary amount. So even if you chose the past, that's fine. I can perfectly understand that choice. But it's a real trade-off. It's really something you have to think about, isn't it? You know, Dave, I, I get all that, what he was saying. But, you know, the other thing I like about 1900, we, we haven't completely overfished the oceans yet. The polar ice caps aren't melting. Global warming isn't an issue. Yeah, I talked to Tim Taylor a lot. and You know, I, I couldn't really topple his optimism. He said, look, when countries get richer, one of the things they want to buy with their wealth is a cleaner environment. I said, what if we destroy the environment before we get around to trying to save it? And he said, yeah, th that is a problem, especially with something like climate change. But Look, in 1900, people had no idea what the future was going to be like. And he likes to think that 100 years from now, people will view our world today as sort of quaint and poor. Yeah, I can just see them now laughing at us because our cars don't float and our dogs can't talk and we don't have <laughs> cupcake trees in our yards. <laughs> no robot pets. <laughs> no robot pets, exactly. We do have robot pets. Not good ones, though. Tell us what you would choose. Would you rather live in a mansion in 1900 or a house in the suburbs today? You can let us know on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash planetmoney. Or you can leave a comment on our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm David Kestenbaum. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And Dave, before we go, I feel like I just want to clear one thing up. I would never actually want to go on a fox hunt. I was just joking. It's true. He loves foxes. Thank you for listening. Come again, your voice is fading out and in.